500 vehicles to sell, 500 ways to save. One month only at Phil Penny Mitsubishi during May Memorial Month. Now through May 31st, we will accept your credit application. A $200 down payment and a $350 a week paycheck can get you a new Mitsubishi. Don't forget, every new vehicle comes with our 10-year unlimited warranty. You can win 5000 with our 5K test drive giveaway. Visit PhilPennyMitsubishi.com. To qualify buyers on approved credit, warranty valid through 10-year ownership on new vehicles only. One entry per household per month. Must be 21 with valid driver's license and insurance. See dealer for details. Shut up and sit down. that point in their life where 
they comfortably say, I'm a writer, they flip their shit. They literally flipped their shit. I mean, it was just like that they couldn't handle it. It was, it was terrible. It was terrible. Um, for me, when I I crossed that divide a long time ago, I mean, I was I was a little kid, really, because I was always a storyteller and. When it came time to, when people started asking me, what do you want to be when you grow up, um, two things came out of my mouth. I want to be an archaeologist. I'm a writer. It wasn't, I want to be a writer. I was already a writer. By the time they were asking me this question, it was no longer an aspiration. It was a truth for me that I'm... I want to be an archaeologist, and I'm a writer. I mean, it would just come out of my mouth every single time somebody asked me. Um, and um, I don't know when the archaeology stopped. <laughs> I mean, it did. Probably around the same time I realized I had to work out in the heat, and I'm not one for the heat. <laughs> As my grandma would say, I'm not one for the heat. I don't like to get hot. She had one of those really, really smooth voices and this really beautiful accent. And um, she, uh, if, if you've ever watched Still Magnolias, she kind of sounded like Clary, you know. <laughs> Just very, very, very southern and um, butter wouldn't melt in her mouth. Uh, kind of thing, but uh, she was definitely um, a steel magnolia in every single way. She was a total badass, and um, uh, I I live every day in the hope that I'm, you know, making her proud. So uh, even when I sleep all day, I'm sure she's proud. Uh, <clears throat> but um, I have a list of shit to talk about. Hold on. Um, <clears throat> but I do want to... Um, now, I titled my show Head Hopping is a Sin because it is. It's a sin. It is a sin. And I commit this sin. That's why I know I'm guilty of it. I do it. I once, in in the unspeakable plot, I put the point of view of every single person in the scene in one sentence. I know. I know what... It is. I know how tempting it is to do because it's like a, it's like a hand wave of destiny. You just whoosh. There you go. <laughs> and everybody was really upset. <laughs> then you move on, right? Mission accomplished. But you've head hops like a motherfucker in the meantime. It's terrible. It's terrible craft. And I have been known to do it. And in, in my youth, I did it like. Man, I owned that shit when I was when I was young. I mean, every everybody but the dog had a POV of scene. But I've learned, I, I've learned over the years that that that's really really bad. It's really bad, and you need to train yourself out of it. And the single best way to train yourself out of it, or to at least notice when you do it, because a lot of writers 
and I was one of them when I was younger, did not notice when I would head hop. It was just the same flow out of me, and I would move on, and I would not realize that I had changed points of view in the story in the scene like 15 times, which is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. At the most, in a single scene, it is your goal to, if you must change point of view, if you must change characters, do it no more than once per, say, 5,000 words. Unless you do a scene break and move on to another location, which is the only reason you would do a scene break, you don't do a scene break to change point of view. That is really amateurish, and it's um, it's bad craft. The only reason you use a scene break is you need to make sure your reader understands that you're now in a new location with a new set of circumstances. It separates your manuscript out into reasonable portions, and it teaches your reader to follow your pace. You create short scenes to build tension. You have long scenes to slow things down. You use short sentences to have impact. You use longer sentences to slow the reader down, to pull the pace down. And that's really important in, like, falling action to use, um, like, in an action scene, you want to keep your 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 scenes uh, sharp like a knife, and you want your uh, your dialogue and your if you have any and your sentences to be sharp, so they punch they punch into your reader. And then when your action starts to fall, your sentences can get longer, and it will slow your pace down just enough to bring your reader down off that action high if you've accomplished it, and bring them right down into your ending of your scene or your book because each scene should have a a beginning a middle and an end and an up up a top and a fall so you just kind of have a rhythm in your scene in your chapter in your book and when you do that you create a reading experience that your um that that your author, that your writer that your reader will really um enjoy and and get hyped up on and um, all that jazz. Uh, I, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of warning for the show, and that's um, a double-edged sword, because I knew what I was going to do, but I also knew I needed a nap. So I took a nap, and I didn't create the show before I did that. And so when I woke up, I only had 15 minutes to get out my crap together, and I accomplished it like a boss. I got my ice cream, I got my tea, I fed my dogs, I made the radio show, and by the time we were, like when the music finished, that's when I was getting my ice cream. So I think I did pretty well for only having 15 minutes to do all that crap. Um. The chat's not moving for me either, so I think it's just quiet for the uh, for the person who asked. Um, I guess I haven't said anything truly outrageous to get you guys uh, agitated in there. Uh, <clears throat> there, um, I noticed a trend, and I'm going to talk about it. Uh, <clears throat> I announced, I announced the. Um, uh, the basic structure for National Novel Writing Month Challenge on Rough Trade. Uh, 
and um, there were some questions, both in private and in public, and there was some um, there was some discussion. And this is a single POV challenge, and what that means is that you are required to write from a single character's point of view. You are not allowed to head hop the entire challenge. You may write your work in first person or third person. Third person is he, she, they. First person is I. I went here, I did this. I was really upset by this. That's first person. Third person is he went here, he was really upset by this. That's third person. There are variants on both first person and third person to, to do with um, the God perspective, but I don't care if you do that or not, um, that that's a personal choice. Um, this is a writing skill that I'm trying to encourage in you. And I also realize that it might be difficult for you to accomplish it, especially when you're being asked to write 50K, which is why I split the challenge. So if you feel like you can't write 50K of one person in one person's point of view, you can do two stories at 25K. That way you can tell a second story from a different character's point of view. Just that way it, it kind of opens you up and, and, and gives you some room if you're unsure if you can do 50K from one point of view. What I will tell you is this. The easiest way to accomplish a single point of view in a story is to write in first person. But writing in first person is, is um, difficult. <clears throat> it's intimate. It's not often well received by readers. Um, especially when you dig deep into a character and you expose parts of the character that the reader is not comfortable with. Encountered this with, I, I wrote a short story from McKay's point of view in first person, and it's called I Spy, and Lady Holder just put a link up in the chat room, and I will put a link up on my um, uh, radio show as well. And um, people were, there was a mixture of, um, there was a mixture of responses for this show and for this, for this story, and not all of it was good. People were deeply uncomfortable by the, um, by the uh, creepiness of McKay's inner dialogue. Um, and I don't know if they were uncomfortable because they felt like I got it right or because I got it wrong. I, I, I don't really know. They never really said. There was never really um, – and he is. He, But the thing is, is that's very um, – Lady Hall said in the chat room that he sounds like a stalker. And um, that's actually kind of very much true to McKay's character if you think about him. In canon, he's um, he has a very narrow focus when he's – when he's on point and when he wants something, like when he wanted to um, activate the device on Duranda, or is that, is that what it's called? Was it called Duranda? The, the episode was Trinity, um, which I've only ever watched once because I'm mean, so furious. Um, yes, I did do a first person from John's point of view for what might have been. It's called um, 
home front, and I didn't get nearly the uh, the uh, backlash that I got for this first person, McKay. And I think it's because he was creepy and he was intent and he was possessive and he was um, very blunt and very honest, which you expect to see from McKay in third person, but third person blunts it and you don't get that perspective. You don't get that mental view. But when you write McKay in first person, you expose parts of McKay's character that can make readers deeply uncomfortable. And also it can make you uncomfortable if you're not prepared for it. So, um, for for those of you who are coming into the November challenge, I would actually encourage you to write two stories. Write one in third person from a single character's point of view and write a second story in first person from a single character's point of view. I think I am on the fence about what I'm going to do because I was um, – uh, uh, I'm on the fence. I don't know. I'll, I'll figure something out. Um, <clears throat> but – uh. I mean, I don't have a problem writing in um, first person. I just don't know if I want to do that uh, for the challenge. So, but I, I, I left it open for you to decide on your own. You know what you want to do with that. And um, now, in the home front, you know, John comes home from Atlantis, and he's he's you know, he's a little broken, and a little heartbroken, and um, his spirit's a little down, and he doesn't know quite what to do with himself, and. People are, you know, moving around him in ways he can't control, which is contrary to his experience for the last couple of years because he was on Atlantis and um, he, you know, basically was in control and um, of that situation as much as he could be. And now things are going on around him that he can't. He can't. He can't deal with it. And so he comes home. You know, he's he's on he's he um. He goes into McKay's bar, and he's confronted with this attraction that he had, and he, he ignored because he thought a part of John thought he was never coming home from Pegasus. Uh, and then there's McKay, you know, being all sarcastic and feeding him pie, and it's just like it's coming home for John. John's finally home, and he's been on Earth for months, but he's finally home. And that's what what might have been is all about. Actually, it's about um, John um, coming to grips with home and family, and um, and falling in love. And this is what might have happened if McKay didn't go to Atlantis. And that is the whole premise of what might have been. This is what happened because McKay did not go to Atlantis. Because if McKay had gone to Atlantis, they would still be on Atlantis. That's the premise of what might have been. Which is also why Lantean Legacy is in some ways a is a um a mirror verse of what might have been. There's a question, um In most of your stories, they're in Atlantis for two years before they go back or give up on Earth. How does that work with the timeline from canon? It doesn't, because canon means jack shit to me. Because they had so many supplies that it would take that long for them to get really um, 
the now in what might have been they actually had contact with Earth for two years. And considering the power issues on Atlantis, I figured two years is about the limit they could handle that kind of mess before they came home. And that's why I chose it. And do I have more than one story where they get up on Atlantis and go home? I thought only what might have been, but I have a lot of Stargate stories. Now, they're still on Atlantis and Sentinels of Atlantis. They're still on Atlantis and ties it bind. They're still on Atlantis and Atlantean Legacy. You got me confused. <laughs> I do think canon is more of a guideline. <laughs> Written in pencil. Yes, Atlantean Legacy, they do give up our Earth, but it's because Earth gives up on them as well. It's a, it's a mutual fuck you. Atlantean Legacy. <clears throat> There was a statement in the chat room where people, this person said that they had um, they had a hard time writing from multiple points of view than they do one point of view. Um, a lot of writers prepare. They know a lot about their story. They know a lot about their characters. They know a lot of back history. They, um, I think that head hopping is often a problem with people who plot and plan and world build a lot. Because they know a lot and they want to tell the reader a lot. So they have all these characters in their story who have these amazing backstories. And they want to share all that with you. <laughs> and the end result is is that um, they they have all this information that you'll never know. Which is why I think Pottermore is so interesting. Because J.K. Rowling... Um, Every once in a while, just busts out with a secret that you didn't know, and you're thinking, oh, Joanne, how could you keep that from me? But I don't, there's been a discussion, because she said that Hogwarts was free, and um, I think a lot of Americans have a hard time believing that a boarding school could be free, <laughs> or that right, basically any school outside of public school could be free. Um, public school as in paid for by the government school. I think that in Britain, Public school means something different, right? Anyways, um, I'm going to continue to assume that Hogwarts costs money because I'm not. Yeah, uh, Jeep says that um, a public school in Britain is a private school, basically. Okay. In the United States, a public school is um, the school that all the kids have access to and the government and the state government pay for it with tax money. And we can, you know, there's sometimes there's votes on taxes that go to schools. Now, they're saying that they call um, schools state schools. Government-funded schools in Britain are called state schools. There you go. There's a little Brit picking for you. I know I totally fucked that up. I wonder how Brits feel about my, about my Harry Potter because I noticed that this is really interesting because I didn't know this was a problem. I was watching um, Emma Blackery's uh, 
is that how you say her last name? Um, YouTube channel, and I'm addicted to her YouTube channel. I just I love to listen to her talk and do all her things, and I think she's really funny. And um, she was talking about coming to America and tipping, and she didn't know how to tip. And I realized that there's a scene in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond where Harry and Hermione have have lunch in London, and he tips the waiter because that's just what you do in America, right? But a Brit picker would have told me that that didn't happen, that they, that he wouldn't have tipped his server, because apparently they don't do that in the U.K. And I'm like, really? You don't do that in the U.K.? But then I realized that their waiters probably get paid a good wage, <laughs> and they don't get paid $2 an hour, or excuse me, $2.35 an hour to wait tables. So if you come to America and you go to a restaurant and you get waited on, please keep in mind that our servers get paid $2.35 an hour, Maybe sometimes as much as $3.15 an hour, but that's really rare. So you should um, tip uh, anywhere from 15 to 20% of your check. I know it sounds barbaric and weird. Just just go with it. Plan ahead. Just plan ahead. I waited tables. Um, I don't recommend it. It's a terrible job, but if you, but if you got to do it, you got to do it, and then you work your ass off when you wait tables. Um and it's just exactly they plan for you to tip that much. In fact, there's a law in place that if the waitress doesn't even out by the end of the night at a minimum wage, that the employer is required to pay them a minimum wage for their hours there. But I wait tables for years, and I never once, once got my employer to pay the difference if I didn't make my tips. So just please keep it in mind. talking about oh so yeah i do wonder how how british people feel about my harry potter when i do shit like that because i i throw a little americanism in them there they really weren't prepared for and they're like what the hell why is harry tipping these people but yeah it's just it i tip my on tipping i tip my waitress or a waiter, I tip my um, the person who does my nails. I tip the person who cuts my hair. I tip the barista who makes my coffee. I mean, seriously, they have a little tip jar right there, right there on the counter, and just tips. Anyways, if you come to America, tip your waitress. Be kind to your waitress. The ice cream is fucking awesome, by the way. I'm having a hard time eating it and talking it and it not melting. So I'm sorry for the little bouts of silence. We're doing... um, uh, There's a vote going on in the Facebook group of Rough Trade. Um about our theme for November, and I know that's not fair to the participants who aren't on Facebook. Um, get on Facebook. I, that's where I handle a lot of the business for Rough Trade. Get yourself a Gmail account. Create yourself a profile that looks real enough to pass Facebook's stupid policies. And 
join our Facebook group for Rough Trade. Um, and the, the Rough Trade Facebook is only for writers. Only for writers. You are not required to participate in Rough Trade to be a part of our Rough Trade Facebook group, but you must be a writer. This is not a group for readers. This is not a group for social discussion. Um, I hurt some feelings recently because I had to. Uh, I deleted people who weren't writers from the group, and I'm still doing it. And um, it's not personal. People took it very personally. It, it, it's not personal. It's. Um, a desire to create a situation where there's a work group where writers don't feel compelled to explain themselves to readers. Because there's a level of entitlement in every non-writer who's in fandom that they can't even really help. They think they have the right to ask questions about your work, and they expect you to answer them, um, whether you want to or not. And they think they have the right to ask for more, 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 more. Um, I'm going to address that question in just a minute. Uh, there's a question in the chat I'm going to answer. Um, so there's this entitlement in readers, even in good readers who are generous with their time and generous with their feedback and are never hostile or rude. Um, they they still have an entitlement about them that makes it difficult to have a discussion about writing um, in front of them. Now, there's a question in um, the group that says, I have some stuff on AO3, but I haven't written in a while. Can I still join? I'm going to tell you something, and I want you to take this to the bank. That's an American term, if you're not an American. That means you, you can take this as the gospel. You can keep this deep in your heart as a truth. You are a writer, and you don't have to justify it. If you wrote a book 10 years ago, but you haven't wrote since, you're still a writer. If you write 100 words a day, you are still a writer. If you're crazy like me and you write 5,000 words a day, you're still a writer. You're a fucking writer, and it has nothing to do whatsoever with whether someone has seen your work, whether someone has read your work, or whether someone likes your work. They don't have to like your work for you to be a writer. Writers are born. It's in you the moment you come out of the womb. And you put pen on paper and you are a writer to the day you die. Take that to the bank. Now, <clears throat> so yes, motherfucker, you can join Rough Trade. <laughs> Send me a note on Facebook, and uh, I'll I'll get you put in there. <laughs> I don't think that's appropriate, Azor. Azor said, "Preach it, sister." I'm not sure you should say "preach it" to somebody who just said "motherfucker." I'm just, I mean, you know, I'm not a Christian, so I'm gonna let you be the judge of that, <laughs> since you are in fact a Christian. Yes, you can send Lady Holder a PM if if you're afraid of me. <laughs> I do, in fact, have a cult. <laughs> so, I, I think it, I don't know who it was. Somebody had a, uh, had a, uh, 
someone reached out to them recently, and she said, but she's not one of, she's not on your friends list. I said, well, maybe she's just your fan. And she says, I don't know what to do with a fan. And I said, I created a cult. <laughs> it worked out for me. It may or may not work out for you. Um, <clears throat> God, the ice cream was fantastic. I highly recommend Haagen-Dazs. I... Yummy. It's very expensive normally, but it's yummy because um, that's some good stuff. I also got some coffee ice cream, too, and I got some um, uh, some caramel, caramel, ever how you say it, um, ever how you wish to say it. <clears throat> and um, I got um, some chocolate, and I got some peanut butter and chocolate ice cream. I can't wait for that. That's going to be amazing. <clears throat> Hello. Lady Holt, you're on the air. I am indeed. How are you doing? Oh, you know. That good, huh? Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> um... Watching the the uh, entertainment of the uh, chat, listening to you drinking my coffee. I made iced coffee for the day, and I haven't finished it all. So, <laughs> and because I don't really, I don't have an ice maker at the moment. I basically got some um, uh, ice cube trays and put leftover coffee in them. So I had oh, cool. um, coffee ice cubes. Which, frankly, works out a hell of a lot better because then I don't have watered-down coffee. <laughs> but, yeah, that's my, you pour that was it? my day today. So you, so you uh, pour coffee over your iced coffee cubes? I poured, I made my iced coffee, the liquid, cream and some flavoring in the coffee because I like caramel, so my iced coffee is caramel flavored. And then I had the... Uh, frozen coffee ice cubes or frozen coffee cubes and I dumped those in and lo and behold hot fucking damn it's great that sounds yummy it sounds really easy too you can still drink coffee right you're not you're not restricted from that anymore right I'm not restricted from that anymore no I had an issue and um, I had um, there was an issue, and I didn't get to have coffee. I thought it was your blood pressure. Um, it was an issue. It kept going up. It was an issue. Yeah, that's okay. Too. Well, um, um, but yeah, I'm I'm good now. Um, what happened was, is, um, uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I had a little infection. It's over. Everything's done. Um, she's all better now. As much as I yeah, I'm awful. all better. I'm in top bitching form. Um, but I do mean that about <laughs> writers being born. You can be taught world building. You can be taught craft. You can be taught sentence structure and point of view. You can Oh, and trust me, those are really things. nice things to be taught. But you can't be taught to be a writer. You either are one or you're not. You can be taught all these craft topics to make you a better writer, but um, I do, I really do believe writers are born, and it's just like being an artist is born, being a sculptor is born. You can be taught techniques, 
but if the drive to create isn't there already, um, it's a waste of time to learn those techniques. There's a um, thing I found with most of us who I've talked to about writing is most of us at one point or another, for those of us who call ourselves writers, um, we're the kids who could take the barest ideas and spin out a story. And I remember telling stories as a kid, um, spinning tales that could last a whole afternoon and entertain everybody I knew. Now, you know, at eight years old, these aren't exactly, you know, the most riveting stories ever on the planet as, as I remember them. Um, but they were wholly and entirely made up, full, you know, whole cloth. We had the imaginations that saw beyond the world we were in. And so, you know, it's... Um, it took, a, as I said before, it took a double dog dare to get me to actually write, to put it down on, you know, um, well, not quite paper because it was, you know, the whole um, doing it on live journal. But, you know, it was something that I did finally. And then I got another double dog dare and I got assigned homework and, you know, that that happened eventually, and hey, lo and behold, that homework's gone on to do good things for me. So, you know, it's... She always says she got assigned homework. I, I, one night... You assigned um, me homework. I, I did. I, I said, dude, you need to write me a story. And I said, I want this, this, and this. And I basically hung up on her. And a couple months later, I got it. <laughs> I had homework. What are you doing? Homework. What? You back to I want werewolves no. and threesomes <laughs> and gay sex and ha- I, I, I want it all. I want all the porn. And she delivered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she delivered. I even structured a story around it, too. <laughs> yeah. Lo and behold. Yeah. Lo and behold. So, you know, it's... Um, I actually resisted that for a long time because my parents and, and <laughs> thank you, Kira, and my my um, my dearest beloved husband um, all gave me. Well, you you do this whole writing routine for for fan fiction. Why don't you you know um, actually write a you know uh, you know a story to be sold? You can make money off of it. And my reaction to that was, that's lovely. I don't feel like it. This is not something you rush. Okay. And about the time I got double dog dared, finally, um, it was about the right time to do it. And it felt right. And I was, hey, I was confident in what I was doing. And lo and behold, I did it. Yay. And that was a hell of a confidence boost. Boom. Knocked it out of the park. What I would say about that is, um, I um, I can't say that I uh, knew for certain she was ready to go there, um, but 
I always encourage people to go there. I think it's a um, it's an experience that a lot of readers writers need to have. It um, it gives you perspective. It, it gives you access to um, uh, professional uh, level editing, and I learn a lot in every editing process. And uh, going that route, I've seen a difference in Lady Holder's writing since she's been through editing um, twice so far? Is it three times now? Three times. Three times. Yeah. And, and let me tell you, editor number one, <laughs> editor number one was much, much less harsh on me than editor number two. And editor number two worked on books two and three that I did. Not, you know, it, and I, I finished edits on book two. And book three, um, I wasn't the one who sat there with, or pardon me, my editor wasn't the one who sat there with the hacksaw and started sawing off stuff. Lucky me, I got to do it. And that was harsh. That, that is not a pleasant feeling at all. But, and here's the thing that I got told, is that my editor at the end of the process said what amounted to I was very surprised to find how willing you were to do what needed to be done to make this book publishable. And she was very complimentary about what I had done because I went through with the rules she gave me and I talked away and came out with something at the end that you know was better than what it started at. And it definitely, um, it definitely made a difference. But boy, that was a harsh learning curve. <laughs> wow, that was a curve. But so, tell me on the other side of it, what what do you think? Um, I've got like two or three started, and I'm still trying to work on the rules that I got given and work within those rules because it makes it a hell of a lot easier when at the end of the process if I start at the beginning <laughs> because I like words and so you know making sure that everything flows as it should and quite honestly is not um, not quite as fluffy as as I've made it before um, that's that's a necessary thing so. Yeah, I think um, what I learned in um, editing in, from the very start was um, to set aside my uh, <clears throat> my ego. Yeah, we all have. I have one. an ego. Um, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> My, I have an enormous there. ego, and you all know it. I mean, I think that when I crossed the line from having just Facebook to having Twitter, Facebook, and I mean, you know, let, let's be honest, my my fan fiction site is a monument to my ego, and I am totally aware of that. Um, I think that in the beginning when I was a very young writer, I didn't um, know how to separate my ego from my craft. Um but I've learned to do that, uh, and I learned to do that through the professional editing process because um, no matter how 
thorough your beta is, your beta, um, if you have a strong beta relationship, it's never going to be as impersonal and demoralizing as a professional edit. <laughs> Okay. Unless you get so some right. asshole in fandom who just wants to make you unhappy, and yes, that does happen. It happens a lot. Oh hell you no! Know, uh, there's a great yeah, video on. Um, there's a great video on YouTube from Carrie. Woo, I forget her last name. Uh, called Tall Poppy Syndrome, and she talks about how um, people. Uh, want you to succeed, they want to build you up, they want you to be really, 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 really good. And then when you get really good, they want to tear you down. <laughs> mm-hmm. And apparently it's called tall poppy syndrome. And I, I wish you looked it up on YouTube so I could put it on my list. Um, and uh, but Are you looking up or should I look it up? It doesn't matter either way. Her name's Carrie, okay. and it's called tall poppy. Tall um, poppy syndrome. And it's on YouTube? But uh, she, yeah, and um, she's just, um, you know, it's, I got an email about three weeks ago, and um, it was after, her username is way past my, way past my bedtime is her username, absolutely, Azura, thank you. Great, great YouTube channel, I highly recommend it, she's very talented and beautiful and, um, Inside and out, and I don't just mean her physical looks. I mean she's just—it's way past my bedtime. Is the username for YouTube, and we'll put up a link on when Lady Holder finds it for me. She's not just um, a beautiful person on the outside; she's a beautiful person on the inside, and she's um, she's got a lot going on for her. She's super talented. Carrie Hope Fletcher is her name. Thank you, Azure. And she um, she's an actress and a stage performer. Let me know if this and, is it. Um, she. Uh, She's just, she's a really fascinating young woman, and, um, yeah, that's totally it. And um, (laughs) I highly uh, recommend you subscribe to her channel and check her out. She's she's a lot more serious than Emma Blackery, um, who I also adore on YouTube. Uh, But, um, they're both very interesting young women. They're both British. and uh, Carrie has a book that came out, uh, and she has another one on the way. And I just, I, I, I dig her, and I, you guys should totally check her out because she's really interesting and um, she's funny, and uh, she's just, yeah, she's got, she, uh, she's, she's got a lot going on. So I'm gonna put a link up in, the, um, uh, put a link up for Emma Blackery too. While I'm on that subject. One thing I was gonna say. One thing I found uh, chatting because we uh, remember um, and and please understand for people who are on rough trade, there are certain mods, and we all we all do talk. We all do um, figure out, you know, how we're going to collectively react to things. But one thing I found is that. Um, 
we've all at one point or another been, <laughs> I'm sorry, is that any better, guys? Um, one thing I found is that um, we've all at one point or another been told we're big-name fans, okay? Um, and I find it to be horrifically weird because I'm not a prolific writer. I'm not, I mean... I don't think that prolific it, it, goes with big name fan. I think big name fan is like um, just someone who's recognizable um, by other fans as being influential in the fandom. And um, I do find that you're very influential in the fandom uh, because I feel like your your contribution to the Sentinel concept in Stargate was kind of a movement. And you you moved that that trope in a way that I would put on the same level as say um, the way Xanth moved BDSM because there were there were these stories in Stargate for the Sentinel concept but they were small and they were about mostly about Rodney and you shifted it mm-hmm. and you created um, whole thing around and it spawned it it, it and it didn't just spawn me. I'm not the only one that mm-hmm. went, oh, look, John's a sentinel, <laughs> and went and wrote that shit. <laughs> there were a lot of people who did that. So I think in that respect, um, that that influence you had on the fandom is, is, is evident. You know, so you don't dismiss that part of it. Um, I, I personally find that whole BNF thing, that big name fan thing, really offensive um, on an intellectual level because it makes it seem like one fan's more important than another in a fandom, and I think that's bullshit. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, if you just look at the influence of a fan in fandom, you can see how there are kind of like little – little pools in fandom and in the center of that pool is a writer and they move and they move things around in them and they create and they create a stir with tropes and they uh mm-hmm. they shift things around and they create a... oh jesus just realized something shut up <laughs> i'm sitting oh over here God. and laughing God. Because, oh, you know, for fuck's oh, sake, woman, oh. that's so you. <laughs> I am not a big name fan, and fuck all that. Bullshit. It's so stupid. Bullshit, it's bullshit, so bullshit. You are, you are a BNF in Stargate, in Sentinel, in, in, where, where let me, let me find that damn, okay, and let me see, I'm going to have to go backwards on this and Harry Potter, and as soon as we ever get that fucking thing done, I'm willing to bet you're going to show up as a BNF and, frankly, drag me along with you, goddammit, in Sherlock Holmes. And you know what? Star Trek and, you know, just suck it up. Buttercup. <laughs> oh, yeah, can't forget so The Hobbit weird. when that finally gets finished. <laughs> So weird. Oh my god, it's so weird. It's so I just weird heard that me. epiphany happen. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> that was just the best thing ever. 
<laughs> Oops. <laughs> but it's true. Um, I was mostly talking about writers like um, Zant and um, Aslan mm-hmm. and um, uh, Dances with Gary, Sephiroth, mm-hmm. and um, Mrs. Hamill. And, um, oh, yeah. I think uh, Mrs. Hamill, since I know her actually, I haven't talked to her in ages, but she she's one of those that definitely was absolutely inference. Desperanza, yeah. Um, absolutely. I cannot read that woman's yeah. work like going, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Where were Mrs. you? Hamill is, yeah. Where have you been all my this, life? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> there's... There's things that I can point to that I know that I had influence on. Okay, I will admit the the Rodney as a Sentinel thing never ever made sense to me. Yes, technically, you know, he looks more physically powerful than than John Shepard. However, he he's not. You know, he might be able to lift more if he ever bothered to, but John is of the two of them, the much, much more dangerous. All right. Um, I think you and I were talking about it because we were watching the the uh, the trailer together, that new Martian movie that's coming up. Mm, I, I want to see that like crazy. Yeah. yeah, you and me both. But, you know, there's a scene in there where the guy who's left behind looks at everything and goes, I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. And we both, you know, <laughs> our reaction was... You know, it's not that, that McKay wouldn't say something like that, but that would be something John would say, you know? Yeah. Because he ha- he is a an incredibly smart man, all right? And that's the difference he between John just, and Rodney. John would approach that subject and not get there immediately, but Rodney would go into it thinking, I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. John would have to mm-hmm. have the epiphany. I'm going to have mm-hmm. to science the shit out of this. <laughs> you know, but yes. it's just a, a way of thinking that it's already there mm-hmm. for Rodney, and John would have to get there. Another mm-hmm. another huge fan in Stargate that I find very influential and very inspiring is the author of A Farm in Iowa, and I cannot pronounce their pen name. Mm-hmm. Every day I wish to myself, why can't your pen name be pronounceable? Why don't you call yourself Joe? <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's not happening anytime soon. Um, Shay, I can't even. I can't even try. Let's just call her Shay, uh, because I'm gonna put a link up in the chat room for you guys. And if you've never, as a Stargate fan, if you've never read A Farm in Iowa, what the fuck is wrong with you? Seriously, what's uh, wrong with you? Shay, Shay Frotherdon. Shay Frotherdon. Shay. Yes. <laughs> Well, just, yeah, Shay. Amazing, amazing, amazing. I'm, I'm going to put a link up in my um, episode thingy um, for the listeners who aren't in the chat room for later. Shay mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> Frotherdon. I get. Woohoo! I managed Shay, to make it. Shay Frotherdon. Thank you, Never Gonna Happen, um, from the chat room. Shay Frotherdon. Because I see that when you say it right there, but when I'm looking at her name, I don't see that. It's <laughs> just like it's one big jumble of letters. 
hooked on phonics would not have worked for me. Let's <laughs> put that right out there for you. <laughs> oh, what's really fun? Just saying, just saying. What's really oh, fun with my job? I um, I have a cousin who is um. You have uh, a lot of cousins. I do. I have a cousin who's French, um, and um, he called me and he said. Why do you bloody Americans keep trying to call me Lewis? I said, because that's what it looks like. It looks like Lewis. And he said, no, it doesn't. I was like, yes, it does. We've been having the argument for two years. And that, and that is exactly every time he calls me, that's the first thing he says. Um, his, his, his name, name is, Louis. is Louis. His name is Louis. Yeah. Louis. Yeah. Um, but uh, Americans pronounce it Lewis. And it makes him so mad every single time. Um, and so he, so every time he calls me, that's the first thing he asks me. Why do you bloody Americans call me Lewis? <laughs> oh, God. For 20 years now. It's great. It's great. His name is Louis, and he is beautiful, I have to say. Um, uh, the first time I saw him, I thought, oh, my God, I hate that I'm related to him. <laughs> I didn't meet him until I was 16. My... And I was like, oh, God, I, he's my cousin. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My my job requires me to be <laughs> to be exposed to a lot of names. And not a good 25% of them did not come from by the west, I mean Europe, parts of Europe at least and and the US and Canada. A good portion of them came out of Places like India or um, the Far East or places where, you know, there's all sorts of consonants all mashed together with uh, SKI at the end, there might be a vowel in there if you're really lucky. And I look at these names and you can't load this thing up into Google and say, can you pronounce this for me, please? <laughs> it just doesn't work. And you take your best guess and you really hope you didn't mangle it. You know, and I think it's part of the reasons why when it comes to doing characters, I'm really, really attached to simple names where, you know, if I'm if I'm really feeling generous, I might give somebody, you know, two um, syllables to their first name because I have to pronounce this in my head at least. And I'd like to be able to do it other than say, oh, yeah, that person. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a little side. I play this game on Facebook where I have this little um, castle and a little farm, and um, it's called Royal Story. And I have a little dragon, and I name my little dragon Louie after my cousin. <laughs> so if you, go to my, if you go to my little farm on Royal Story and you hover over my dragon, you'll, you'll probably see Louie because that's his name, Louie. It's not Aww. Louis. It's Louie. Keep that in mind. Okay, uh, it's Louis. <laughs> Anyways, back to um, influential fans, and that was a really terrible moment for me, and I want, I want to thank all you assholes for laughing um, at my expense. Um, I think it's fabulous. Every single one of you is just a fucking asshole. Just every one of you, asshole. I'm your best um, friend. You really expect me I to love be you sweetness bitches. and light and everything nice? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I don't. I, you wouldn't be my friend if you were. I, I love all you bitches. I, I really do, but fuck you. 
Okay. So what, what I see in fandom, what happens is is that um, uh, one author's headcanon starts to uh, influence other writers in that fandom. And um, oh God, yeah. There's there's it also influences a, readers, especially readers who haven't mm-hmm. watched the original canon. And I know. I know I've I've done this to people because I've had them email me <laughs> and complain because Matt Shepard wasn't in a story. And then I had a fan who'd never watched Stargate. And when Stargate came to Amazon Prime, or was it Netflix? I don't really remember. I think it was Amazon Prime. Um, they were watching Atlantis, and she sent me an email asking me to um, – at the time, I'm pretty sure it was Amazon Prime. But now I think it's, um, it's on Hulu as well if you haven't seen Stargate Atlantis and you're interested in watching it, even after the story. So she emails me, and she's halfway through um, the first season maybe, and she asked me when Matt Shepard's going to appear because she's looking forward to seeing Jensen Ackles' performance on Stargate Atlantis. <laughs> and that's when I had to tell her that Matt Shepard was an original character and that he was cast as Jensen Ackles by my readers on my website. There was a poll and everything. Um, there was a vote. People voted. Um, and um, she stopped watching the show. And I was like, oh, no, stop watching. Oh, no, she's done. She's done. So she said, just tell me which episodes I should definitely watch. I said, well, I think you need – Well, you." You've already watched, you know, watched The Rising, um, and I said I I think that just so that you have a good grasp of the fandom, that you need to watch Trinity, and you need to watch Storm the Shrine, the Storm in the Eye, and um, you need to watch uh, the, the Tao of Rodney. Is that is that that, that mm-hmm. one? Is that what that, that was called? And you need to watch the one where he's in the jumper and he what was it? Um, I don't remember the name of Under that Pressure. One, but, yeah. Under Pressure. Yes. You, you, you need to watch Under Pressure. Um, those are the episodes, mm-hmm. if you never watch any other part of Stargate, you need to watch. You need to watch the pilot. You need to watch Trinity. You need to watch Storm in the Eye. You need to watch um, Under Pressure, and you need to watch The Shrine. Um, I think The Shrine, except for the last four minutes, is the best episode they ever put together for Stargate Atlantis. Under Pressure was very definitely, oh, it was amazing, but it was also a very, it was a very good acting thing by by David Hewlett. He did a very good job at that one. Um, Going back to the the influence thing, I, I honestly, I cannot tell you who sparked that damn thing with uh, the Sentinel, but the the main problem that most of us have with how how guides are treated um, in the majority of, of Sentinel fiction, I honestly think came out of one person, and I can't remember who started it, but I watched it creep, you know, and I can tell it, you exactly where um, that shit came from. And I don't mean to disparage this writer. I'm not saying that. But there was a there was a AU, there was an AU mm-hmm. written for the Sentinel where guys were slaves. It, the GDP, oh, yeah. 
Oh God, and I that's remember where that. all yeah. that started. That's where all that started. Um, mm-hmm. I think the original version of it was even not even Slash. It was Jen and Bla- oh, Blair was horrible. property. Oh yeah, and trust me. It was a horrible situation. It was actually very good writing. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't actually read much of it. I couldn't. I couldn't handle it. The, the themes are really. I read heavy a lot of it. And the I, I read a lot more. Heavy and terrible and. Um, yeah. I don't torture it, myself. It, yeah, please don't. It it was very heavy. It was I, I read a good portion of that and it's um I got so pissed off at stuff that was in there that I would walk away and I'd I'd have to do anything other than, than go read. Because there, there wasn't the emotional satisfaction at the end of the story. All there was was anger. And I know. So that's actually, it's a very yeah. powerful work. Because as a job, um, your job as a writer is to invoke and um, provoke. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, yeah. Um, and inspire and make angry and make sad and make happy and mm-hmm. and you do all that as a writer and she accomplished that like gangbusters i mean she she worked she worked her readers over so so you so you got to give her props for that mm-hmm. and kudos but the unfortunate oh, yeah. spin out from that from that universe isn't the universe itself um it's what it inspired in other writers mhm that's not her fault no. She had no way of knowing that it would do that. Just like Xanth really had no idea that she would inspire in me ties that bind. So she's not responsible mm-hmm. for what I did in ties that bind, even though oh. I do consider her my direct inspiration for what that is. And um, it would break my heart if, if, if I found out she hated it. <laughs> but I don't know that she's ever actually read it. Um, I, if, if, if I was her, I wouldn't. I would never read ties that bind if I was Xanth. I never would. And um, I don't read people's – the only ties that bind that I read that people who write that are – like I read Sinna's. I'll read Jilly's. Mm-hmm. I read Original Tempest. I read the ones that I have on my site because I was beta for them, and they are directly connected mm-hmm. to my work. Um, but if someone asks me if they can use the concepts of ties that bind in their story – um, without writing a connecting story to my own, and I say yes, because of course I say yes, it's, it's on my site, I have a whole permission page for that shit. Um, I'm never going to read their work. Mm-hmm. The, one of the things I find that I, I'm, I actually have watched with this last rough trade is some of the concepts that... Um, I think we can trace back partially to you. Some of it I, I know is to me, um, but it's concepts of power and independence. And I don't think I've seen a Blair yet that is a rather scruffy, furry boy, girl, whatever. Or doormat. Something. Oh, yes. Rug, yeah. throw rug. Um Yes. There's not a single one. I want to tell you something. I think that's my fault, and not for the reason Mm -hmm. that um, you're you're talking about. Oh yeah. 
Um, it's, it's it's not about my writing. It's about my attitude. Oh yeah. Um, well, that's that's fine. The too. writers who would the the writers who would write that kind of Blair hate me. Those writers mm-hmm. in the Sentinel fandom who wrote Blair that way, they hate my guts, and they're not going to come on Rough Trade and write with me. They're not going to come play in my sandbox because they hate me. And that's okay because I hate mm. them back. Yeah, well, I'm not a real big fan of some of them either. I mean, I've seen uh, – there's a couple of Sentinels that I like, and they're, they were back on 852 Prospect. And actually there's... Which was moved to AO3, so so you can find most Mm -hmm. of those works on AO3. Yeah. Um, They are... Most of the ones I'll go back to nowadays are very much a strong and confident player. Okay. They're the type of, of one where, you know, he will stand up to and um, stand with the Sentinel. And, you know, it's um, Polly Bywater. I'm looking at my my list here. Um, (laughs) And Word Witch. Those are the two that I was looking for. Um, Word Witch did a series called Doing Sandberg. And it was Jim coming to the realization that um, his, his guide meant more to him than he expected. And it's, his, uh, it's, it's Blair realizing that there's that that his sentinel needs more to him than expected. And it's it's really an interesting take on how they react together. And um I one day I mean I remember reading it as, as they came out and just being absolutely fascinated by them. And links in the uh in the chat. And that's called doing Sandberg? That's called doing Sandberg. Put it on my list. Um, <clears throat> but that kind of influence can be dangerous. It can be. Um, mm-hmm. um, it can be ugly. Uh, I. Mm-hmm. I have never set out to influence another writer um, with my ideas that way. So when it happens, it can be sometimes deeply uncomfortable, and sometimes it's just amusing. Um, like there was a discussion Sometimes in it, Rough Trade, I think, um, in Facebook where they were where someone asked, Wait, 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 is Ragnar really the head of the goblins or is that just Kira's canon? <laughs> I was like, No, I don't even think, I think he's mentioned like once in the whole book series and he's a friend of Bill mm-hmm. Weasley's. Uh but um it just mm-hmm. made sense to me that <laughs> gotta give that asshole some name. Um so sometimes you you create uh, part of the reason that my headcanon invades your headcanon is because I tend to reuse my headcanon. So it becomes part of a bigger canon, which is why a lot of people who've never watched Stargate are surprised that Matt Shepard is an original character because he appears in almost all of my Stargate work. So 
when they see. It's also a thing that we're, that you're aware of that um, he's going to have to appear in all your, your various stargates because if he doesn't show up, well, that gets things interesting. There's questions. Where's Matt? Where's Matt? Where's Matt? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you guys going to mad at with this time? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them a secret. Go for you it. You think I should tell them? I'm going to tell them. If it's the one that I think um, it is, sure, go right ahead. <laughs> When I originally plotted Lantian Legacy, which is a AU of what might have been, I had to make some decisions about uh, characters um, on mm-hmm. Earth and um, and their position in John's life. And in the original dra- in the original draft of mm-hmm. book two of Lantian Legacy, um, Matt. Is dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, he died um, as a baby with his mother in a car accident. Um, that is just the draft. I have since changed my mind. Do not worry about it. Matt will be in book two, probably book three. He'll be a badass motherfucker in book five. So don't worry about it. It's 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 okay. <laughs> But I had written Lantian Legacy before, because um, I've got actually four books written for Lantian Legacy. They're just in really bad shape, and they're not ready for public consumption. Um, and uh, fucking Daniel Jackson. Um, in the original draft all you. of Lantian Legacy all 1, you. I know, Lantian Legacy 1, I left Daniel Jackson on Earth. Well, you know if you've read Lantian Legacy that Daniel Jackson ends up on Atlantis. Well, because, because I wrote these books in sequence, I have to rewrite the other books because Daniel Jackson's ass is still on Earth in book two of the original draft. It's some shit. That's all i got to say. Anyways, I had to make... so, But I had written Lantean Legacy before, um, or during... I don't think Matt really got super popular until Ties to Bind. And once I realized uh, how attached my readers were to Matt, I realized that I could not leave him dead in um, Lantian Legacy because it would, like, really upset people. <laughs> By the way. <laughs> so that's another part I have to rewrite for Lantian Legacy that I've been keeping to myself. Sometimes um, if an author um, consistently uses uh, tropes and characters and um they push topics in over and over and over again. They create a a, a headcanon that can <coughs> kind of filter out into fandom in ways that they didn't anticipate. Like Rodney's citrus allergy. Is Yes, it is mentioned both in Stargate Atlantis and in Stargate SG-1, we never see him have a reaction. Um, there is some indication that it may even be just in his head in, in, in canon for Stargate. But in fandom, Rodney's uh, citrus allergy has a life of its own. It's huge. It has this huge impact. And it's in my stories, too. I can't even help myself. 
Well, we're all, we're all of the opinion. Yes, I'm here. I'm sorry. The husband was just swinging by to ask questions. Um, oh, okay. The, this, yeah, sorry. There's things that, you know, sorry, I'm not give, getting him exposed to everything. But what I was going to say is the thing with, with um, Rodney's allergy and I think what a lot of us twitched about was in, in canon, um, a lot of people are, oh, hey, it's no big deal. And yet we're, you know, the rest of us are going, well, no, wait a second. It's a very big deal. It's a huge ass It's a deal. very big deal. And they use it as a mm-hmm. joke in the, in the series, which is not fun. And as someone who has a food allergy, I have to tell you, um, when you're given food and it's on a plate mm-hmm. and you have in the back of your mind that there's a possibility that something on this plate could kill me, it's not a joke. It is nothing. It is not funny. Absolutely not funny. I have a shellfish allergy. I also have an allergy to kiwi, um, and I have some. I have some um, like drug allergies as well. Um, I have gone into anaphylactic shock. In fact, the first time I was exposed to this one allergen, I went into anaphylactic shock, and I woke up in a hospital. And I had no idea what had happened to me. So it is not a joke, and it is not funny, and it is not something to threaten somebody with. If I go into a place that's serving clam chowder, I can't eat any of their soups because all the soups are kept in the same place. And the idea of cross-contamination, if I go to a buffet and they have clam strips or oysters on their seafood bar, I can't eat any of their seafood because I can't guarantee that some customer hasn't come along and used the tongs from the shrimp on Mm -hmm. the clam strips or from the fish on the clams. I mean, it's just I can't take that risk because while I do carry an EpiPen, being stabbed by one is not a good time. My... Um, my allergies are thankfully mild. Um, I'm also allergic to kiwi. Um, my allergy to that, I stopped eating kiwi before it tipped me over, uh, the edge into, um, possibly going in anaphylaxis. Uh, I got restriction to my airway and I got tingling on my lips and I stopped eating it. I haven't eaten kiwi in close to 20 years, maybe a little bit more, or a little bit less, I should say. Um, Sorka said that's because the writers of the series made it clear that it was, they use it as a joke yeah. because they knew a guy that constantly complained about a fake allergy. But it was never made clear in the show that Rodney's allergy was fake. No, it wasn't. So all those jokes and look mean. They, they, they look mean mm-hmm. and they look like they look like terrorism. I'm, I'm not even gonna lie. I mean, because if someone threatened me with shellfish, it would freak me the fuck out. If I had to mm-hmm. worry about somebody tainting my food on a regular basis as a joke, I would hate them. It's it's one reason why when I I have mentioned it in in my writing. I've mentioned it as a 
it's not just something that Rodney has to to work with or or um, be aware of in day to day life. It's something that everybody there does because you know, and, it, and it's something that I would have it, it's fully expected. Um, and obviously was completely over their heads. But when you've got a group of people moving to someplace where they, you know, they've never been, they don't know what's safe to eat. Okay. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, it's something that, that has to be touched on. Oh, Oh, God, the Sarah, that's horrible. Um, she yeah. said, I know someone who ended up in a witnessing a fatal peanut allergy because of a potluck where one of the contributors lied about using peanut oil. It is not. And that's that's murder as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. That is straight right up here. murder. That is, uh, I know. I asked. Um, I, I, asked I recently, my kiwi, my kiwi allergy is about a year old. I have, I don't remember if I've ever had kiwi in the past and didn't have a problem with it. But the last time, the time I had kiwi, I had it in a fruit salad. And normally, kiwi doesn't look good to me. It, it never has looked good different for me. So I probably have never eaten it before that I can remember because it just looks weird and I don't like the little seeds in it. And it so fabulous. But but this kiwi was chopped up in a salad, um, and mm-hmm. I I put it in my mouth. And my mouth caught fire. I mean, it was like it was. Oh God, it was it was so terrible. I could not drink enough water to get this shit out of my mouth. I threw up. I um, I got hives um inside and outside of my mouth. And if you've never had hives inside your mouth, it's no fucking joke. I. Ew. Yeah. No. I'll pass. Azura says, I had one of my cousins intentionally put berry juice in my drink to prove my allergies weren't too bad, and I ended up in the ER, and she was mad at me for almost dying. We don't speak. We wouldn't speak because her ass would be in prison. Mm hmm I'm not afraid to put my own family in jail. I may or may not visit them. It just depends on what they did. I'm just saying. <laughs> I would probably have problems. <laughs> yeah. Jeep says, someone told me once that if my faith in God was strong enough, I could eat shrimp. Isn't shrimp one of those things you're not supposed to eat in the Bible? Uh, yeah. That's on so the maybe list not. of... Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that, you know, maybe not. <laughs> I'm just saying that since it's not kosher, that no matter how faithful you are to God, he might not appreciate you eating something not kosher. I'm just going to put that out mm. there for you. I know. I mean, I... uh I had people who did not believe my allergies were as bad as um they um they are. Uh I 
I had an allergic reaction so profound to a drug that I had a grand mal seizure. And um, because um, you can have a seizure if your airway gets blocked, and um, they're they're rare for allergy sufferers. Uh, but I had one when I was 19, and um, I actually was prohibited from driving for a year because they didn't know if the seizure condition was going to be um, – if I was going to have another one because they re- they really could not definitively say that my allergic reaction was the response – was was the reason I had the seizure. So I for a whole year I couldn't drive because if you have a seizure condition, you're, you're, not, you're not allowed to drive. Um, but I've never had one since, and I've never been exposed to that particular allergen again. So um, my yeah, driving not. restriction was lifted. Uh, but I do carry an EpiPen, um, and I've carried one um, for 10 years. I've I've had to use it twice. I don't recommend it. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there for you. Uh, you know, so don't play with other people's lives when it comes to their allergies, even if they're lying about it. Accept it as the truth and move on. Don't test them. Mm -hmm. Don't ask them questions. Just accept it because the other side of that is is if you don't accept it and you're not careful with them and you kill them, you've killed them. There's no reset on this. Yeah. There's no reset switch for that one. I carry um, on my keychain. I have one of those little uh, pill boxes that screws on, you know, screws together, mm-hmm. and it's on my keychain. And, and in that little pill box is three Benadryl. And I change them out when um, every year to make sure they're not expired. Um, and I carry those Benadryl, and I carry uh, a um, EpiPen, and um, there have been situations where I felt like I might have been exposed to an allergen, and just to be safe, I took a Benadryl um, because it's better to be safe than sorry. Um, I work in an office say, it's, better to, it's, have... it's literally better to be safe than sorry. So um, yeah. always take somebody's allergy seriously, always. Yeah, I... I um... I work in an office environment. I hate it when people spray shit. Not just because I don't always enjoy the smell, which quite frankly I don't always enjoy the smell. Most of the time I don't enjoy it at all. But I know that there are some people who are asthmatic or have compromised breathing. Um, we got one lady running around the office with an oxygen tank. And they don't need to have the air in their office which is already full of the smell of two or 3,000 people in my building be contaminated by, you know, the accelerants and the the perfumes and the shit that we we have. It's just no, okay? And there are people who are sensitive to the chemicals, okay? And they're allergic to those. So, you know, I've, I've... flat out told people, please don't spray stuff because you don't know who in your area, you know, because we got two or 3,000 people walking through an area, you don't know who's allergic to it. 
you don't know who's going to fall out and, and have breathing problems or hives or, you know, have, have that grand mal seizure. And thankfully, we haven't had that. But all it takes is one, and I don't need to have that happen in front of my desk. You know? I know, right? Not, no. But, yeah, this is really interesting because yeah. I think that this response people have to um, to allergies, and especially if they have allergies, kind of creeps into the Sentinel fandom because you see um, – mm-hmm. you know, there are several episodes in the original series where Jim had reactions to chemicals or drugs, mm-hmm. and it took a life of it, – it, it took on a life of its own in fandom um, that, you know, the uh, the – hair issue on the guide's body, um, perfumes, uh, what his clothes are made of. It it just, it became this thing. Um, but mm-hmm. in all honesty, from a bio, from a biology point of view, a sentinel could not be that sensitive and function in their oh. role as a guardian. Yeah, this would they would have to have built-in I... protections and not just a guide to because they would have to adapt. Otherwise, that sentinel thing would have just completely gone away. So for Jim to come online in an urban environment, um, biologically speaking, he had to be able to handle it with a guide or not. Otherwise, that's just mm-hmm. an evolution. Um, you guys keep in mind that we're an adaptable species, even if he is a throwback. He, if he could not survive it, then the mis, then the mis, then the mythology of him coming online makes no sense. Well, I now I'm all for that sensitive, be sensitive, and you know, here's my guide, and I need my guide. I love that shit. I love that trope. Mm-hmm. But from an intellectual point of view, I I realize that in order for a sentinel to come online and function in his role as he is supposed to do, that he cannot be that sensitive to chemicals and materials on his body and hair on his guide's body. He literally can't be that sensitive because if he is, he can't function in his role, and then therefore why did he come on at all? Well, here's here's a, a, um, a couple things. First off, that's the reason why I switched over the – um, who was a sentinel and who was not because it was the fragile sentinel trope and it was Rodney and I even remember the story he was a um I love that story. I love that story. Yeah, he's, he's an architect. He's a, he's a uh yeah, he's an architect who John was his guide and it was um he was so 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 sensitive to certain things and getting more so as the years went by and John was freaked out a lot. And I understand the trope and I, and, and I can get why they, they ran with it. But to me, it bothered the hell out of me because yeah, there's that instinctive reaction of you can't be consistently and constantly sensitive all the time. I can see where if something new comes into the environment and you know it's it's not something you've been exposed to you react you process and then you shunt to the side and you're fine okay you you've made note of it your body's reacted to it it's dealt with it appropriately we're we're done i'm not going to say that sentinels are going to be this this super um immune system that goes out and takes care of everything um wasn't that a star trek episode where the kids had a super immune system, so they were isolated, so they didn't kill their caretakers. 
because their immune systems were that horrible. I remember. Oh, well. Um, I don't either. The series um, that she's talking about, the story she's talking about where Rodney's a fragile sentinel is called Imperfection. It was written by Dasha. It is actually beautiful. Um, it is mm-hmm. a beautiful story. Uh, Rodney is um, so fragile as a sentinel that it could very well kill him. Um, which again mm-hmm. doesn't make evolutionary sense, but it's a beautiful story. It is very well written. Mm-hmm. Um, it is one reason why when I left that story, I immediately went to Google and put John is a badass sentinel. <laughs> I needed, I needed something, and I wasn't getting it. I needed it. I needed it so bad, and um, that's how I found the unlikely and the unwilling. Because hello. I needed it, and that was actually on um, Race Bait at the time. Lady Holder didn't have her own mm-hmm. site, so it was on Race Bait. And um, it's still there. I, actually, uh, I haven't looked at it in years. I read it, and I was like, "Hell yeah!" And then I sat down and went, "Huh? <laughs> what can I do with this?" <laughs> well, and surprise. then Sentinels of Atlantis came to me. So Sentinels mm-hmm. of Atlantis is a product of imperfections to unlikely unwilling until. What can I do with that? That's the transition. But Imperfections is beautiful. I have to say that. It's a beautiful story. It, it is. But it is really hard to read Rodney so mm-hmm. fragile and so hurt. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, John is so worried. And um, there, there, there's at one point where John has to leave him and um, Rodney mm-hmm. – uh, reacts very badly and it's just it's so, mm-hmm. oh god it was horrific you gotta read it, it. It's, I, it's a nightmare it, of a story it's not a bad ending that i can remember no Mm-mm. um no it's not a bad no ending at all death, it's, it's actually but there's a lot of mm-hmm. angst and hurt and comfort and drama and um it's uh it's a little heartbreaking but it's also beautiful. Mm-hmm. It is it is deeply beautiful. It's also on the AO3. It is. I gave the link for race bait, but if you go over to AO3 and put Imperfections by Dasha, you'll you'll find it. That mm-hmm. way you can get an ebook if you want the ebook. Um, but I did the race bait link because that's where I read it originally, and that's where it is in my bookmarks. Um, so Imperfections what I was by Dasha, say is, and that's where Rodney is a fragile sentinel. <clears throat> Sentinels of Atlantis, by the way, is what led me to. Um, young young sentinels and guides. That's a circle. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a circle of influence. Dude, true. <laughs> and the concepts that you came up with, the S and G centers, and um, the the a lot of the um, the very strong characters and the guides and how they react and how you treated um, and, and how you reacted to, because I think you were the one who, who basically enshrined wolf guides as the, you know, oomph, if you will. That's what, what um, the no, reason why Rodney's a wolf. No, oh, you I wasn't. Oh, you were the one I read. Let me tell you the one that I read. The one I read where um, Blair um, what had been um, a guide in a uh, sentinel guide facility and Alex mm-hmm. uh, mistreated him and raped him. Ugh, Alex was oh. in the original series. And um, Blair calls a hotline. He's young. He's like oh, 19, yeah. 20. And he's in a field, and he's about to kill himself. And Actually, he wants to warn them. 
wherever. Mm-hmm. He was somewhere by himself. He was, he was out in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And um, he uh, calls his help center to warn them because he's a wolf guide and he knows that when he goes down, it's going to be a huge event. Mm-hmm. And Jim is the one that answers the phone, and Jim realizes that that's his guide about to kill himself, mm-hmm. and they they find him before he does it. And um, but that's where it came to me that being a wolf guide was special, that it was huge, that it was um, being a wolf guide was not unique but rare, and they had that's where that came from for me. And I mm-hmm. forget the name of that story, and please don't ask me about it. Cause Permanent. I, I don't have a bookmark. I'll, 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 I'll look for it before. It's actually, huh? it's actually Permanence by Polly Bywater. They put up the they put up the name of it. And oh, oh, Claire, thank you. Okay, Permanence yeah. by Polly Bow- Bywater. I've been looking for that story for like two years. If I only know. <laughs> yes. Well, bring it up and see what happens. Um. It, it, uh, no, there is discussion of rape, and I think that there might even mm-hmm. be like a flashback or something. And um, so is. please be careful if you're um, someone who might be um, susceptible to that. Just just be careful. Mm-hmm. Be super careful. It's, it's, it is a <laughs> it is a very nice story. And but it's it's got some topics that that definitely are very harsh. Um, but what I was also going to uh, comment is, I, I think it was after talking to you with, and I think it might also have been with Senna and one of the ones that she actually doesn't have published yet. But we were talking about um, one of the things I ended up doing in Young Sentinels and Guides was. Um, an extension of what Rodney is, and I had him lock somebody up in their head. And I've seen that one pop up a couple times, that particular ability, if you will. You know, it's... um, it's It's an interesting ability to put in with somebody, to be... Mentally, judge, jury, and executioner. But it also goes with the protecting the tribe part of, of you know, what they, um, what they do. Yeah. But we got so. just, we got like twenty minutes left, so we're going to talk about the time travel trope, which has won the poll on um, uh, the uh, um, <clears throat> on the uh, on the Rough Trade page. Facebook group. It is wonderful. Yeah. Um, so we're, our theme for for November will be time travel, November. and um, original fiction or fan fiction is welcome. And you will be required to write in a single character's point of view, and you will be able to write in first person or third person. You can write 150k or 225k. Um, these are decisions that we can make uh, in uh, September. So be thinking about it. And um, just keep it on the brain. Uh, what happens in fandom with, with with things like uh, the time travel trope and Sentinels and Guides mm-hmm. is that we do create a um, a list of expectations um, as readers and as writers that you expect to see. Um, because when we 
last night when the poll was being was was super active and people were voting, mm-hmm. um, Lady Holder said in our private chat, uh, "Oh, look, we're going to have a whole bunch of Harry Potter fix in November because it's like you super connect time travel and Harry Potter." Because Harry Potter's it's life magic. is so fucked up. You want him to travel back in time and fix all that shit. Well, hello. How many... Okay. Okay, I'm going to be honest you assume now. that many, time travel requires magic. Huh? Well, you how know, I can always do this. Do I have? Yes. All right. Well, you're counting. I can do the hand wave of destiny and 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 pick the Star Trek method where I do a slingshot around the sun. Uh, I will admit I probably would not do it in a Klingon warbird. I can do the um, quantum leap thing. Um, there's let's see what other time travels. There's the I have twelve uh, time travel ga- stories. Ten <laughs> are. Harry and Hermione, two, are Draco. One's already been published. Um, it's uh, the first War Mages. Um, mm-hmm. I have another time travel uh, idea that I haven't really formed fully where um, uh, Draco lives his whole life out and he dies and he comes face to face with Harry in the afterlife. And all the manipulations that they they both suffered have been stripped away. And they're left with the realization that they've been in love with each other since basically at first sight. And they live their whole lives. Why do you tell me these things? So this is my idea, okay? It's, It's in my idea Bible. It's not actually on digital file yet. And so that's my 13. I have 13. Um, time travel stories, and um, oh, you have more than that because I know there. I know of at least one other one. Actually, I know of, I know of at least two. Fourteen, fourteen, well, those and fifteen. Are dimensionals. The, those, no. those are dimensional travels. I don't. No, this is well. I, I will admit these aren't Harry Potter's either. Okay, speak to me. Tell me. There's that Hobbit one. The two Hobbits. Oh, you got oh, oh, the Hobbits. I've got two Hobbit ones. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about those. I was looking at Harry Potter. I didn't. Um, uh, I love yeah, the idea of time travel and having a character who knows more than they should and how that impacts mm-hmm. the the story that was originally told. But my Harry and Draco mm-hmm. one is that um, they're given an opportunity to go back um, to the very beginning and try again. And um, they... Uh, do they remember? Um, I haven't gotten that far in my plot. Uh, Draco doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to. He wants to stay where he is and just have an afterlife with Harry. And um, he's fine with that. That's he's, he's young again. He's beautiful again. He, But then they have to also come to realize that their wives are there too. And... <laughs> God, I'd run as far as kids. They wouldn't have had her there. It's it's you know there's a lot of trauma there, and um, Harry wants to do it all over again. So there's a there's a you know Draco's reluctant, but Harry's all you know Harry's game in because all that shit went wrong and fucked up shit happened and people died that he didn't want to die and he's ready to do it all over again. But Draco's reluctant, 
so it's kind of like a Slytherin and a Gryffindor walk into the afterlife. (laughs) (laughs) Fall in love and get the opportunity of a lifetime. Um, so it's I mean, it's it's interesting. It's it's interesting, and I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but uh, I have it in my idea book. And, uh, oh, I've got. But, uh, why the hell are you yawning? Anyhow, I've got. You know, my idea is is looking at the whole. You know, you've got Daniel Jackson who ascended, and you've got a bunch of people who can play. Play God with the universe, or at least they think they do or can. And so I'm thinking really hard about having somebody or at least have him manage to slip the, the say, fuck it, slip the controls, be subver- be the subversive little shit that he is and reset the clock and see where he would reset the clock at and just go from there. And that, that's my idea at the moment. Whether or not I'll stick with it, I don't know. I so. told Ron Weasley last night in a story. Yes, and it was wonderful. I loved it. <laughs> I was really mad. I had I had a bad moment, and so I went over to um, my folder and I opened up a new document and I wrote out a story where um, I killed Ron, and that is actually the first time I've actually killed him. I mean, I I abuse him a lot in in fan fiction, and I um, do a lot of stuff to him, and um, mm-hmm. I hate him, and I bash him, and I make him evil. But I've never actually killed him before, and it was very cathartic. I have to say, I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. hell yeah. <laughs> hey, I read it. I My like, reaction to it was was to basically sit there and went, woo, you know. I just Jilly read it. She was said incredible. it helped her too. It totally. I like, thought it was wonderful. I anyway, thought it was great. So yeah, I did that. So we're gonna mm-hmm. do time travel in November, and so yes, I do imagine there will be a lot of Harry Potter, but I also think there should probably be there will be a lot of Teen Wolf. Mm-hmm. Because there's a little magic, magic in Teen Wolf, and more importantly, Teen Wolf needs to fuck fixed out of it. I mean, it just needs to be fucking fixed. Oh my fixed, god. Fixed, 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 fixed. Um, and oh so God, I think yeah. Team Wolf will, ha- will have a big representation. I think that, um, um, see, time travel was actually canon in Stargate, um, both uh-huh, in Atlantis and SG-1. So, um, I would expect to see some of that. Uh, time There's travel is canon in Star Trek. Travel. I would expect to see some mm-hmm. of that, too. I would love to do, in fact, I think I probably will do a Star Trek time travel, because um, I was reading Tangled Destinies um, yesterday, and I kind of fell in love with it again. And so, um, I uh, yes, yeah, I'm I might do a time travel for. Um, I'm all for that. Um, uh, Star Trek. I might do two projects instead of one. Uh, so I don't know. You stole my heart. Oh, what a wonderful <laughs> thing. <clears throat> Anyways. You know, it's because you can do all kinds of things with time travel. It doesn't have to have a mm-hmm. a magical component or a science fiction. You can just hand wave it. You know, just <laughs> well, wake up. There's a, um, how the fuck did this happen? <laughs> you just yeah, wakes up. 
Nineteen-year-old Styles wakes up in his eight-year-old body and doesn't know how that shit happened, but he's got shit to do, so he gets up and gets stressed because fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> Time to get a move on. You know, there, there's also yes, yeah, the, you could do a Groundhog uh, Day kind of thing. Oh God. Oh yeah. That I'm sorry. That is the best episode in Star Trek, or not Star Trek, but Stargate, with the whole. Golfing through the Stargate. That is just the best episode. I love it. I love that episode. <laughs> Window of Opportunity. I, I love that episode. Yes. Um, I have a question. Is there any other plans for other Weasleys? I just reread The Soulmate Bond. Actually, uh, Bill Weasley features heavily in the next part, uh, and you get to meet uh, – the extended Weasley family, huh. you get to meet some cousins and the patriarch of the family. And you would know this if you checked your email, Lady Elder, because I sent you Harry's vassals last I, night. I did. I did see it, and <laughs> I actually am, I, I read it, and I'm thinking about it. And, and I can tell you right now, um, I'm going to have to uh, reread it again because – not just for the sheer enjoyment factor, but just to make sure of any holes, because I was reading through it and enjoying the hell out of it. Um, That's a problem when you're a beta, when you're really, really into a story. Um, you you forget to beta. <laughs> you have to go yes back no, and I was actually keeping, Sometimes you have to go back and reread <laughs> everything, because, you know, I, I don't actually have a actual honest-to-God story Bible. Most of this is kept in my head. So this is where the fun part comes in, where I actually have to reread stuff to remember where everything is. And since this particular series is coming up on, at, at the minimum, I think the 200,000 word part, that's a whole oh, lot no, of Oh, no, 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 no. Are you serious? No, we're closer to four. <laughs> oh, well, you know, this is what well, I get for not actually you. putting the numbers together. Well, I have a big file. That's why I have a big file for the um, for the ebook because mm-hmm. we're coming up on thirty episodes, which will be the end of season one. And so I have um, an ebook <laughs> file that I'm creating um, for uh, the ebook. So I have everything in here, but the most current part. And Harry Potter and the mm-hmm. Soulmate Bond is at three hundred and forty-four thousand words, and <laughs> the. Um, Harry's vassal is 16k, I think. So I just pushed over 350k for Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond. Um, the the last part of season one is going to be called Hermione's Spirit, and it's going to be at least 20k itself. So <laughs> I have a big file, yeah. Claire. It is huge. And for the record, my theoretical dick is big too. <laughs> Ginormous. Yes, season one. Jeep. I wrote Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, like it's kind of like a TV series. So um, this is just season one. I have five seasons plotted. (sighs) Yeah. I. I actually tend to. Kind of like Sinners of Atlantis is my Stargate TV Mm -hmm. show. Um, Harry Potter mm-hmm. and the Soulmate Bond is my um, Harry Potter TV show, and I like the idea of mm-hmm. creating like a like a virtual TV show, you know, with episodes. Mm-hmm. It's very fun. It's um it's 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 very interesting to write in episode format, um, which is very different than writing in a chapter format or a novella format. The way mm-hmm. that Ties That Bind is written, Ties That Binds in novella, um, what might have been in novella format, um, 
but Sentinels of Atlantis was written in episode format, and it's really um, interesting to structure a story like you would a TV episode. And I think a lot of people, um, and this is not me being whiny, but I think a lot of people um, don't actually pay attention to the craft I put into that. So it's kind of disappointing sometimes. I'm like, dudes, really? <laughs> Don't you see the arc? Don't you see the beauty of it? Don't you see that? Because, like, Sentinels of Atlantis is not only individual episodes, but it is one big, ginormous story that mm-hmm. I plotted. A, so, yeah. But then Tangled yeah, Destinies is the same one. way. I, um, mm-hmm. Tangled Destinies I, is my Star Trek story, and I plotted it um, both together and individually in ten parts. Mm-hmm. So each story stands on its own, I think, in the universe for t- Tangled Destinies. Um, but they also tell a huge story, which is why it, um, it has the title that it does, Tangled Destinies, because it's all about Spock and Kirk meeting and tangling up um, both romantically mm-hmm. and physically and um, uh, intellectually, and it's um, it's that moment you know, when your destiny meets somebody else's destiny and suddenly it becomes mm-hmm. your mutual destiny. And so that's what Tangled Destinies is all about. And I, I sometimes wonder, um, you know, people when people get it, it's amazing. And when someone comments mm-hmm. on it, I'm like, oh, God, this was great. When you, I didn't see this. Oh, this was awesome. I love that moment when someone gets mm-hmm. what I was doing. And they don't come often, I have to say. Well, they either they don't tell me they've gotten it or they just don't get it. <laughs> I don't know. <clears throat> One of the things that I um I look at and and I am a enough of a, a Star Trek fan that I would be inter- probably interested in in doing it. The in original canon, um, Kirk didn't meet Spock until he was. You moved it down to 16. All right. And there were, they were vastly different men um, at that point in their lives. And not just because, you know, you've made your, your Kirk um, one quarter beta Z. All right. Um, But it's also, there's a lot of life experience that neither of them had. Okay. You also matched up their ages because, if I remember right, Cannon Spock was a couple years older than uh, Cannon Kirk. He is. He is. Um, He's actually older than Kirk in Tangled Destinies, but not by much. It's like eight, maybe nine months. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And um, it's just uh, someone asked me why I pushed it back so far um, and why I Mm -hmm. made them their ages that they are. And the only thing I can say is that um, I wanted to – to take Kirk to a place where he was gentle and tender Mm -hmm. and open. And um, I think that, uh, well, number one, I had to get rid of Tarsus. Because that Mm -hmm. is a defining and very hard moment for the character of James T. Kirk. And so I had mm-hmm. to get rid of that. He he couldn't go to Tarsus. And so I had to figure out how that was going to happen and, and what was going to happen. And I don't know if the reboot Kirk actually ever went to Tarsus. 
They haven't told us yet. No, they haven't, but you know, who, who knows? We, we've still got, hey, we've got that, that third one coming up, and they've at least um, started playing with it, so we'll see where that rolls. Right. Um, because, yeah, because this Jim, he's he's inexperienced, like you said, as far as life goes. He's, um, and the first time he he falls in love, he falls in love with Spock, and he's and he's not mm-hmm. um, uh, sexually promiscuous. He's not using sex to um, self medicate like Kirk does in the original series. Um, he uses women in sex to, to to medicate himself. He's, um, it, it's he's a really profoundly sad mm-hmm. character in in that way. He doesn't have a great deal of respect for himself or his body or his love or his heart or um even his mind. Well, and um certain people so didn't Tango help Destiny's any about no, of course not, no. But I think for Tango Destiny's my my whole goal as a writer was to take him to a place where um he's he's open to love and open to mm-hmm. the experience of of loving someone like Spock who um takes intimacy so seriously. And uh so that's why I did that there. And even though, even though I came to regret it later because it really cut down my porn opportunities. <laughs> hey, you you've got, you know, you've got the point where you can actually Art 2 is going to be like porn city. It's going to be like Tangle Destiny's the porn version. It's going to be great. But um, we're down to a minute. And um, I think that I I like exploring that tenderness in a man, and that's why um, Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond is where it is. I like – I wanted to explore that that in Harry, um, that gentleness and falling in love and um, the passion of of being Mm -hmm. in love with his soulmate and and, – the pleasure of of that it's it's a great thing to explore as a writer and um i don't even know what i'm going to call the show we're down to 41 seconds say good night lady holder good night lady holder shut up We will accept your credit application. A $200 down payment and a $350 a week paycheck can get you a new Mitsubishi. Don't forget, every new vehicle comes with our 10-year unlimited warranty. You can win 5000 with our 5K test drive giveaway. Visit BillPennyMitsubishi.com. To qualify buyers on approved credit, warranty valid through 10-year ownership on new vehicles only. One entry per household per month. Must be 21 with valid driver's license and insurance. See dealer for details. Seven billion humans on Earth can't all like the same drink. That's why Circle K has Polar Pop and Froster. Pick your flavors and make that one in seven billion mix just right for you. 
Polar Pop and Froster, just 79 cents each at Circle K. Limited time only at participating locations.